You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banditini, and here I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. And today I chat with the leaders of the OHBM uh, uh, Open Science Special Interest Group, uh, or OSSIG, OSSIG, uh, as it's called. And uh, I have with me five guests, uh, Aki Nicolaitis, uh, who's the chair. He's from the Child Mind Institute. And um, uh, he served on the, the student postdoc special interest group. He also is a uh, research uh, scientist uh, at Child Mind uh, in New York City. His research focuses on using advanced statistical methods to better understand psychopathology, brain organization, and cognitive performance. Uh, Aki's work in neuroscience, psychology, and machine learning has been featured in over 20 peer-reviewed publications. Second guest is Janine Blisterbosch, or Bisterbosch, uh, chair-elect of the OSSIG. Uh, so Janine um, is an assistant professor in computational imaging section of the Department of Radiology at the Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, uh, the Personomics Lab, as she calls it, is headed by her and aims to understand how brain connectivity patterns differ from one person to the next by setting a personalized connectome uh, using open data resources such as the Human Connectome Project and the UK Biobank. Uh, the Personomics Lab uh, adopts cutting edge analysis, cutting edge analysis techniques to study functional connectivity networks and the role in behavior, performance, mental state disease risk, treatment, response, and physiology. Uh, in addition, she wrote a textbook on functional connectivity analysis, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. My third guest is Katie Boten, Botenhorn, uh, and she's the secretary uh, of uh, the OSSIG. Uh, she's from Florida International University. And uh, she's interested in how large-scale brain network topology varies between and within individuals over the course of everyday life. Uh, she's especially interested in how hormonal fluctuations uh, with menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptives contribute to this variability and how this differs uh, with respect to changes in sleep, exercise, and stress. And Joanna Beyer is a secretary-elect. She's currently uh, at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And she's the treasurer-elect of the OHBM Australia chapter uh, of OHBM and uh, an active member in the OHBM Sustainability and Environmental Group. Uh, this year uh, is also her second year behind the scenes helping to organize the OHBM Brain Hack. And Joanna, who's originally from Munich, Germany, has a background in psychology, neuroscience, and computer science, and was awarded the Melbourne Research Scholarship in 2018 to pursue a PhD at the University of Melbourne. Her PhD work is focusing on creative normative, uh, on creating a normative model of, of the brain from neuroimaging data to study depression and on a method to harmonize side effects in large neuroimaging data sets. In addition to her passion for her work, Joanna loves dancing, rock climbing, and computer science and, and cats. Uh, my fifth guest is Melvin Selim Ate, and there's a new position uh, of inclusivity officer, which 
uh, really focuses on uh, uh, expanding the scope of who has access to and how they have access to uh, all that OHBM offers. Uh, he's at the Middle East Technical University of Ankara, Turkey, and his focus is mostly on the explainability of uh, deep learning. You, know, you have deep learning that produces these results. How do you actually explain, how, how do you know what it's doing? So uh, uh, in this uh, podcast, we, we cover a lot of ground. It's a really outstanding discussion, not only of everything that the Open Science SIG does, but what open science means in general. It's much more than just sharing data and sharing code. It's, it's including uh, different cultures, different people uh, from different countries, and also uh, you know, underrepresented groups within any culture as well. Uh, the more diverse uh, and inclusive we can be, the more robust we'll be. And we talk a lot about that as well. So enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to OHBM Neurosalience Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Manatini. And as you know, we have a, uh, a great lineup today of, of leaders in the uh, OHBM Open Science Special Interest Group. And, and we're going to talk about everything that they're about and, and uh, open science in general and, and, the, and what it means and, and, and exactly what they're doing as far as uh, within the context of OHBM. So just to begin, I'd just like to just go around and, and briefly say everyone's name and then have you introduce yourself so that the, the listeners can sort of associate your, your voice with your, with your name. So, so let's begin with the current chair of uh, Open Science SIG, uh, Aki Nicolaitis. Nicolaitis. Nicolaitis, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Aki Nicolaitis. Yeah, I'm the chair of the, of the SIG this year. Uh, and then Janine Listerbosch, is that right? Yes, that's right. Hi, I'm Janine Bastabos. I'm uh, chair-elect of the Open SIG, so trying to learn the ropes from Aki. Um, and I'm recording in St. Louis at the moment. Uh, okay. And Aki's in New York, by the way, I think. Uh, well, yeah. In, uh, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, 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 Katie Battenhorn? Battenhorn. Yep, you got it. Battenhorn. Hi, I'm Katie Battenhorn. I'm the current secretary of the Open Science SIG. And I just recently relocated from Miami, Florida to Gainesville, Florida. So the okay. Sunshine State. Cool. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Joanna Baer? Yes. Hi, I'm Joanna. Um, and I'm joining from Melbourne. I'm the secretary-elect of the Open Science SIG. OK. And uh, Melvin Salem Ate, do, do you just go by the whole name? And Mel is fine. Melvin is also fine. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm the. Understand inclusivity person in upside sick. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Well, thanks again for for coming. And um, uh, first, I, I you know I was trying to figure out a, a, a good question uh, to to open up with. And 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 I've had and actually we've had a previous podcast with an open science group uh, uh, in in Leipzig. You know, there's a lot of these open, local open science groups that are sort of starting up and starting their thing and. And, and this is the, I mean, this, this group though is a little bit broader in scope and, and it's the OHBM Open Science Special Interest Group. And, and um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about open science and, uh, and, and I was just, you know, reading Talia Yerkoni's blog about, you know, 
how he hates the term open science, even though he's a huge promoter of open science, he hates it because no one really knows exactly what it means. So, so how, um, and any of you can just jump in, how, how would you define uh, open science in its, in its fullest definition? Um, I, I would say that open science is a sort of ever expanding set of terms about how we define how science needs to change in order for us to really accomplish what the mission statement of science is, which is to, you know, um, add to the book of human knowledge for, for all people. Um, and, and as you know, I think starting basically in 2010 um, with the sort of psychologists discovering the replication crisis, we found that, you know, even though science seems, science seems like such a sort of cut and dry thing, um, it's subject, it is a communal effort and it's subject to the same sort of um, psychological biases and mismatch and mismanagements that can happen in any collection of, of, of people. Um, but that has sort of different implications for our work in that it means that the, the actual quality of what we're saying in our science um, might not be exactly what we what we wish that it was, um, but the but the term but I, I mean I definitely agree with with Tal's point that it's a vague term, but it's like saying science is a vague term or yeah. saying maybe saying some you know it's it's a it, it's broad and it's multifaceted, um, but I don't think that either of the either of those things are a problem. I think they're part of the strength of of open science is that it is broad and it is multifaceted. It's more, it's about more than just, um, you know, open data. Uh, it's also about inclusivity and um, accessibility um, and community resource management and long-term scientific planning. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces in there. Yeah. Uh, if anyone else wants to jump in on that. Yeah, just to build a tiny bit. Um in addition to all of the lovely things Aki just said, um, one of the things that we've really been focusing on lately is kind of democratizing science and knowledge um, and the dissemination and collaboration thereof. And so um, open science kind of starts with the idea that maybe we should um, take a better or more in-depth look at the way that we're doing science and allow others to do the same with like open data, open code, open publications. But um, one thing that's been on my mind kind of just in the last few weeks and months is like open to whom. Um, and I think it's really easy to think that open, like if you just make it available on the internet, it's open. Um, but I think one thing that we've been focused on, especially like last year and this year is, um, is answering that like everyone, <laughs> but that's a, that's a pretty big, pretty big ask. So um, I think kind of uh, Aki's note on inclusivity and accessibility is, is really paramount these days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I also think um, I hope that we some some at some point get to the point where we don't differentiate between open science and science anymore. Like there's this great blog post saying like, when will we finally call open science science? Um, and so we hopefully at some point, like it will just be clear that science is open science. Um, and like then everything, like we do all these things that we want, like we want to happen, like share data, make data public, publicly available, share code. Um, yeah, that's what I hope. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I like your definitions. I, I, you know, I sort of 
my thoughts that occurred to me here was like, you know, I look at the field as sort of like this network and the, you know, the generally the better connected the network in any, in every single way, you know, the variety of people, the variety of approaches and the data, uh, the more robust it becomes and, and the more quickly it advances, you know, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, the past century science was just sort of, you know, these elite uh, people in their, in their, you know, uh, institutes writing papers that, uh, you know, that only a few people read and things kind of went really slowly. And, and uh, uh, now having all this process a lot more transparent, I mean, I think that that just allows much more rapid progress and, and uh, it's good for, for everyone. So, so, um, okay, so how, um, so as far as the history of the Open Science SIG, I know that uh, a few years back, OHBM sort of expanded you know they had council they had the program committee but then and then all the all the sigs sort of started opening up so do any of you uh, are, are you know are were you around sort of in the field when when the open science sigs started or and and can you mention how it what motivated it uh, at least the, at the beginning uh, like what's the history in some sense? yeah um yeah i can speak a little bit about the history i'm I joined Child Mind Institute in 2016, um, and Cameron Craddock was at Child Mind Institute at the time, and Danny Margulies had been there, and Satra Ghosh was a collaborator of ours, and Pierre Bellick had been there and was a collaborator of ours. So, you know, those people, along with Nolan Nichols and J.B. Pauline, um, and a lot of, you know, David Kenny, and a lot of other sort of uh, key players, um, were kind of key to starting up the OS SIG in 2016, but they had been building off of a of uh, several years already of work that they had been doing, um, sort of throwing the first, um, you know, brain hack, for example, um, happened in 2013 um, in Seattle, and um, you know the first open science room happened in 2014 in Hamburg when OHBM was in Hamburg. Um, but there was, there, there was a lot of, when I started grad school in 2010, um, there was a lot of talk already of the replication crisis at that moment, right? And that would have, rep, that would have trickle down effects over the next few years that would lead to the generation of these, of these kinds of, um, these kinds of events. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's sort of recent, but, uh, and, and actually, so, and so. Yeah, I like your white pages. It looks like they're they're you know they, they kind of they're not part of the OHBM. There's sort of a link out to the uh, your own web pages, and it's it's really nicely organized. And and I was looking at the first thing that struck my mind is um, uh, your uh, what you what you promote. So it's open data code and publishing, and 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 I I always think okay, so it's one thing promoting it uh, and uh, and and generally encouraging it. So can, can any of you go into detail as to uh, how you, uh, like what you actually, what you're doing to, to maybe promote open, open data and code? It's, are there, you know, there's many other groups like, you know, Russ Poldrack has these sites for, you know, uh, actual sharing of code or, or, or data. Um, what, what as far as is, is what you do to, uh, to promote that? We, we're, we're less like, um, you know, say like OSF or Open Neuro or something like that. Our, our role in the SIG is really one of like um, facilitating a cultural shift. 
in the OHBM community and disseminating the best practices and perspectives about open science um, through um, through the community. So we're let we're not like actually they're providing those open science resources for people. We're trying to, so like sort of how, how I got into open science, for example, was I went to a brain hack. I, com I made a pull request to Nylearn to fix some documentation English mistakes. That was my first like, you know, so it's like, it's like about providing those first opportunities for people in a brain hack to sort of um, get involved. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, that's, and actually that's, I mean, I, I actually think that, um, you know, one always wonders, I mean, it's a big question of how you change a culture, uh, you know, and, and certainly having these warning signs of like, wait a second, our data is not reproducible, uh, that helps. But, but even still, like for instance, at the NIH, I try to get people to contribute to a database of like, you know, across protocols or whatever. And people always, you know, you, you still have this sense where people, like we'll say, well, why do I need to share my data? Because it's my data, you know, I paid dearly for it. I wrote my grant, I did my research and I need to benefit from it. Um, and, and it's sort of like this, uh, you know, mindset in a lot of scientists who are otherwise pretty open-minded, um, you know, that they feel like there's not any benefit um, to them, even in the short run, at least. So it's maybe trying to foster long-term thinking versus short-term thinking I don't know what your thoughts on that are, if you've encountered any pushback um, to, to open science. <laughs> I definitely have. There's a few people at my institution that are still uh, the holdouts on like, well, if we share our data, won't it get scooped? Like, especially when it comes to niche data sets, when you have this like either really hard to reach population or like really novel thing that you've done, I can see the, the hesitation in sharing and stuff. But I think that's one of the reasons that we like having the open science room during the main conference, just um, in um, pre 2020 times, it was kind of just a space with like a pretty loose schedule where anything can happen and everyone's invited all the time. And it's just a persistent place for people to, um, to like discuss these sorts of ideas, to engage their curiosity if they're not sure they're like here for the open science thing. Um, and we always bring in some of the, the projects from the hackathon to present to kind of like share, you know, share the rumblings and um, get people interested if they if they weren't already. Um, but I think that that's one of the one of our like our main missions is just like sharing and educating and um, making open science more accessible to everybody. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. Uh, oh. Sorry, I was just gonna say your point, your point that you make, though, about um, open science being counter to career success is probably the biggest stumbling block that open science faces in terms of becoming synonymous with science. Um, in an, you know, we live in this publisher parish era um, and if, if it costs you, you know, X amount of time to make one paper and X times 1.5 to make an open science best practices paper, um, you'll be beat out for tenure positions every time um, compared to everybody else, even yeah. assuming you, you know, are working just as hard and everything like that. Um, that, that issue alone, I mean, is, is, um, is one that we as an entire society need to struggle with. This is not like a open science 
committed people need to address this problem before we share our data. It's it, which is true. We need to figure out how to we need to figure out how to develop models of career success in academia um, while following best practices of open science. But more broadly, if we're all in agreement that you know sharing of data and findings and protocols and all of these things is essential for the for maximizing the development of our scientific fields over the next hundred years. Let's take that long view, right? Um, then then why are why are we holding off on adopting something new? Why, why, are, why is it that um, tenure committees are still not recognizing um, you know, huge contributions to open science projects as just, just as seminal, if not more so than a science paper or nature paper? Um, and I think it's kind of um, encouraging that the shift kind it like is happening at the top already in very small ways. Like the the idea that funding bodies are pushing for like data openness and um, even making it in some cases a requirement in the funding mechanism itself, I think is really encouraging because it means that at least in the most practical sense, the, the value is being seen. Um, if you spend lots of money collecting this data, you wouldn't want it to stay siloed over here. It would be much more sense if it was accessible to many more people. And I think it's just, um, I totally agree with Aki. It is really frustrating as someone who is like early in her career that's trying to like do all the things, do them well, <laughs> make sure that my like code data, et cetera, are all accessible, um, but also, you know, build a, build a resume and build a career. I think that that's a struggle, but I am encouraged by seeing that like, it's maybe glacially shifting, but it is shifting. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you both. I, I also feel the incentive structure is not yet there, um, but I also think that like what Katie said is more like a top-down revolution, right? Like journals pushing towards it. But I also see a lot of um, grassroots um, revolution actually, like a lot of young in, um, scientists are actually really interested in engaging in open science practices and like approach their supervisor saying, could we make our code accessible? Could we make our data accessible? And, and I think that's great actually, that's very promising. That's how it happened in our lab. It was a, a grassroots, um, there were a few, um, a few graduate students who were really like pushing for it. Um, I was like maybe the second or third on the bandwagon, but um, it's, it is, I kind of like that it seems to be coming at, um, coming at the open science thing from both sides because Joanna brings up a really great point. Yeah, no, I, I, I like exactly your construct. So, I mean, you're, you're, it's all about incentives and it's either right bottom up or top down, sort of like either, or else also one could look at it as, as carrots or sticks, like, you know, top down, you know, sort of a stick saying, you know, you have to, you know, like for instance, the NIH is sort of having these policies, uh, you know, and bottom up is sort of explaining to everyone how it's beneficial. And hopefully they'll meet in the middle, like, right, we're tenure committees. Yeah. Say, look, this person's been promoting open science. That's, that's a plus. And, and that's, and I think, I think after like, you know, probably a generation, like, you know, what's considered a generation in science, um, it will start to catch on even more. And, and it, I think it also helps not only that people share the data, but, you know, when you're sharing data, you actually, I think, also think about, you know, making it more shareable. Like, you know, if you write code, you want to make it better. Uh, if you have data, you want to sort of package it in, in a way that's usable. And so, so that helps the science too. So, so it's, I, yeah. Um, it's always a question and it's not going to change overnight, uh, but everything you're doing is, is really important and, and good uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, 
Yeah, and this is sort of related uh, to, to this question. So there, I mean, there've been papers on uh, uh, reproducibility uh, uh, in neuroimaging that's sort of a crisis. I don't know if any of you want to uh, uh, mention that. Actually, in fact, I just had, uh, I was just talking on a podcast with Ahmad Hariri about his paper of intercorrelation uh, uh, coefficient values being very low and, and you know, how we can address that. Um, how, how have uh, uh, those projects uh, influenced the work? I mean, sort of to restate, I mean, uh, was it influenced directly by these, the so-called crisis that we have? I mean, I think it's a good crisis and it's a solvable crisis, but um, was there a discussion of, of how to address that in particular? I don't know. <laughs> wants to jump Anybody want to jump in on that? I, no. um, so the the I think a lot of us in the open science sig in many re, in many ways come to the idea that okay, open science is the future, uh, and it's not necessarily through a single publication that makes us you know oh wow um, everything needs to change. Um, but I'll just say for myself, like I did my PhD in cognitive neuroscience. I observed firsthand the number of degrees of freedom afforded to me in the process of finding what I found, right? And in that process, I, it becomes very, and also having some kind of recognition of the fact that just humans are, humans have internal biases, we have selection bias, we want to believe the results that lead to a publication more than we want to believe the results that lead to another file drawer, um, you know, paper that never gets published. And, you know, I, 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 my work was in cognitive training. So I feel like I got to see that I got to see this a lot, right? Small studies, large effect sizes, um, then failures to replicate with much higher quality studies, um, and then people talking about hidden moderators. It wasn't a question of maybe the reliability of your of the things that you're measuring is is questionable, or maybe the methods that you're using to select your subjects is questionable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that that was kind of for me. And then all of these papers that get published and are getting a lot of attention, I feel like how I feel like is, oh yes, you know, like this is, this is free PR for us. You know, this is like people understanding how deeply problematic. I mean, if you just read any of John uh, Ioannidis's work um, uh, from, from Stanford, he makes it very clear that it's not a, sur this is not a surface level issue. This is like a core issue of like existential threat to the entire um, concept of how we're aggregating knowledge over time, right? Yeah. Like if we are doing it, if we are doing it very slow, if for every one step forward we take, or for every five steps forward we take four steps back, that's gonna have a very different outlook for us a hundred years from now than if for every one, one step forward we don't take a step back. That those two paths of scientific progress and human knowledge ac accumulation look very different. Um, over time. I'm a big sci-fi fan. So I, I like to think about, you know, what is, the tech, what is the tech tree for human society look like 200 years from now? Yeah. And what is, what are our roadblocks that we're facing to get to those places? Like if say that in 200 years, we know how to diagnose mental illness through the use of MRI, how did we get there? Right. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. 
Um, I also think like, yes, the open science movement was um, influenced by the reproducibility crisis, but also like definitely by the idea to make science more open and more accessible. I think that's another part of open science. And I actually wanted to say something about what Talia Kony said on his blog post that he doesn't understand how these two like terms, diversity and reproducibility, like how they are linked. And like that, he says like there might be people who favor more one or the other, but like not both of them. And I think it's actually impossible to to favor just one of them. Because if you say you want, really want to make science reproducible, then that means you make it reproducible for everyone, not only people who have access to a MATLAB license or to an HPC or from an Ivy League university, but like really to everyone. You cannot say like, I make it reproducible, but then I are just for this group of people. So in, in order to, to, for science to be reproducible, it actually has to be diverse because it means that it, it's open to everyone. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's true both on the back end once you've done the science, but also one thing we kind of forget sometimes or we tend to forget is um, on the front end. It's it's very difficult to study a group of people that you are not part of without like listening to that group of people or like having uh, having some representation from that group of people. And so it kind of takes the I guess it like it just steps back in time. The problem that Joanna is talking about um, just doing science at all. Um, if we're going to do it in a way that like truly benefits like humanity globally, it has to be a global endeavor. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great uh, stepping off point into our next point. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that, yeah, I mean, having it reproducible just to a select group of people with the right tools or whatever um, uh, is not completely reproducible. You want to, you, you sort of want to yeah, you, 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 you want to advance, you want to use the diversity to advance the science, but then you, you first have to make it as, as open as possible. Um, and for instance, just off the top of my head, the, um, uh, the, the Connectome project, to me, that's, that was pushed the field ahead 10 years just because of all the reanalysis and all the deeper understanding of methods and things like that of, of that data set. But there's, we can even do better. Um, so let's actually start talking a little bit about inclusivity. Um, uh, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you have the, you know, the, 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 at the meeting, you have the brain hack and the open science room that are just sort of generally open. And we can talk maybe a little bit more about this because it's really an intriguing concept. Uh, but let's also talk about uh, uh, infrastructure re restrictions, such as, um, you know, for, for instance, uh, you know, we're, we're up against these these much larger geopolitical sort of issues like uh, sites being blocked in, in, in China and Iran. And actually, you know, even for Aperture, uh, you know, Pe uh, Pedro Valdez Souza is on the uh, advisory board for that. He's constantly saying, look, we need to open up. Uh, we need to have more countries represented. Uh, and, you know, at Cuba, obviously, I can't even do a Zoom call with them because uh, it, it's blocked. So how do you how do you address, how are you addressing um, or trying to address all of that? And, and that's, it's certainly an important issue, so. It kind of goes back to what I was just mentioning about science is also true of, um, of this infrastructure problem. It's very hard to know even what problems you have to solve if your group is just people from North America and Europe, um, because we are not facing problems of um, technological accessibility that other countries are facing, um, and so. Uh, I think some of these issues have become much more apparent in the last two years, um, one year and change, um, because being able to do everything virtually opens up a lot, but also exposes other issues, right? Like in person, 
travel is restricted by visas and um, kind of like the concrete geopolitical issues. And then um, I know one one thought that I had, um, kind of a naive thought that I had last year, I was like, oh, great, it'll be on the internet. Everyone can, can access it. Um, that's just not quite true. And so one thing I think that was really helpful last year is we had a very diverse group of volunteers from like everywhere. Um, and part of making our uh, programming open included using um, different different like websites and um, and technologies for access in different parts of the world. So like what technologies, uh, yeah, because I'm actually right. I, I, I'm, you know, we're up against, you know, what could, so I guess there's open, there's, there's, yeah, there's probably niche technologies that governments haven't sort of, you know, identified and shut down in some sense or, or things like that. So, yeah. We've been using Crowdcast um, as sort of like, you know, we, we sort of set out to have inclusivity and zero risk of firewall of Iran or China, et cetera, uh, being a problem for us. So we, we discussed, you know, different options and Crowd, Crowdcast, which is what, what they used last year, um, allows us to basically stream all of our um, content for free to everybody um, oh. all over the world. Um, so we don't, you don't even need to be at OHBM. You don't need to be registered to OHBM to attend all, all of our events. Um, and you don't, and if you have um, sort of, for example, you're getting blocked because Google Firebase, which is what the you know OHBM is used, is based on, um, is blocked in a certain country. You can still attend our content um, with with that. So there's yeah, we've been addressing some some of this just through technical means, moving trying to move in that in that direction. But um, you know there's always limitations on that. We would prefer for some things to be able to have like massive Zoom rooms, for example, um, yeah. you know, uh, and having different technological solutions for different groups of people also means that we have a technical burden uh, while the event is running. Um, that means that we are gonna, we're more likely to drop the ball on all sorts of different things um, as a result, updating the website, et cetera, you know, putting the correct links in the correct places, making sure that the questions from the chat are getting to the moderators from one, from this, you know, uh, platform to this other platform, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, everyone has to expect it's never, you know, that's the problem with, with whenever you try to do something a little bit more open and, and, and it's, it's challenging and there's always, there's always problems. So, and one should never just give up because I mean, yeah, there's always going to be technical issues and no, it's never going to be perfect, but it's, it's better than, it's better than nothing. And it's a lot better than nothing actually. So, I think, I think Aki and Katie are being humble here because they were around last year already. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a newbie to the OSIG and one of the reasons why I applied to uh, or why I ran for the position that I'm in right now is because I was just blown away by what the OSIG did last year at OHBM. Um, you know, we were all pushed to go virtual. It was a big scramble on all, all fronts, but I think um, the OSIG really got it right in terms of, you know, all of the platforms that they use in, in terms of having a lot of really engaging kind of group discussions and, and, and content. So I was, I was really impressed with that and we're hoping to kind of keep that momentum going and build on that this year and, and future years. Well, let me ask more specifically, like, how do you, how do you coordinate with OHBM? Do they have their own thing and then you, you figure out 
your own thing or, or are you trying to influence, are you, are you all working together on the same page as far as what, what you're doing? Um, we have a lot of coordination this year. Um, so I think last year, OHBM getting canceled in person what caught everyone flat-footed and it was like a scramble and, you know, Camille uh, and, um, you know, Remy and Liza and Cass and Stefan, they like pulled through an, in an amazing amount of work, coordinated an amazing group of volunteers from the entire world. I mean, it was really like such a, you know, kind of like gold standard of what the SIG can do, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to live up to it, to, to be honest, but we're going to, we're going to give it, give it our shot. Um, but, um, but yeah, we are working in coordination with them. You know, we meet, uh, we, we now have a, you know, a seat on council, like a non-voting seat on council. So we're in the council meetings, we're hearing what they're saying and what they're caring about. Um, we're giving them feedback. We're talking to program. We're working with them. We're, you know, the tech task force, Katie is on as a liaison with the tech task force. So the development of the Sparkle platform for OHBM this year, we've been like following it very closely, um, you know, step-by-step step the whole way. Um, and I think in general, the open science SIG and maybe the SIGs more broadly are becoming a little bit more um, incorporated into the overall programming of OHBM as I think um, OHBM, OHBM is two thirds trainees. Right, so it's early career researchers are the dominant um, thing, and you know when I was in the student postdoc sig, that was kind of like our main our main message is like, listen, you guys should we should do some more stuff for for the for the kids, so to speak, you know, because yes. it's like most of the most of the um, community is is them, um, and yeah, so I think the sigs are getting more integrated in, into into OHBM uh, more broadly. Okay. Oh, oh, sorry, really quick. Um, that kind of speaks to something that I really like about this community is that um, after OHBM 2020, there was an obvious, like, an intentional effort to, like, incorporate more voices in the in the planning of OHBM 2021, and kind of making it um, Build, definitely building on what we learned from last year. And I think that's really cool because um, now that we've been kind of forced to exist in this virtual space, um, this year we get to do it on purpose and we get to do it well. And I think I think that this sort of effort could uh, really benefit us moving forward too, even once we're um, meeting in person again. Yeah, so so yeah, I just wanted to go into that too as well. So so as far as, so this is what you're doing uh, to your, so as far as what you're doing now, but what about the future? So uh, is there talk about, I mean, how would you, how would you envision um, sort of a hybrid meeting um, or, 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 you know, having both uh, open access to, you know, what's going on versus being there in per person? I mean, you can imagine, you know, we'll eventually be in person, hopefully next year. Um, and, and so what will the, uh, what's your strategy if you've even had time to think about it yet um, then? <laughs> I have a lot of opinions, but if someone would like to go first, they should definitely do that. Yeah, and this is with understood that it's all sort of maybe premature, but just it's, I'm kind of interested in you know general thoughts. Not you know obviously it's not a policy that you're doing or anything like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, my official unofficial take on the matter is that um, I think that we've learned so much from offering programming virtually that we should not just like disregard that knowledge once we've um, been able to meet in person again. Because, like I mentioned a little bit earlier. 
um, one serious pro to existing in a virtual space is that there aren't visa issues in a personal in a virtual space, and there aren't there are fewer financial issues in a in a virtual space. Not that there aren't any at all, because um, broadband internet access is still not global and universal and affordable. But my personal vision is that we should just like coast on the momentum of having virtual programming because we have really great um, technological solutions. I, like Aki mentioned earlier, Crowdcast is a platform that we used for most of our programming last year and are planning to use again this year. And it's a little bit challenging to coordinate people from all over the globe in a schedule to like talk at this time and like have these discussions live in, um, in a way that includes as many people as possible. And I actually see the hybrid meeting kind of addressing those points a little bit. Um, there can be a little bit more flexibility of schedule when you have everybody in the same room, right? And you don't have to like make sure that you're, the person you're trying to reach um, is listening and ready when you're trying to talk. But I think that allowing um, allowing for a virtual link to remain is really important. And I think that we already have some of the technological solutions that will allow us to do that in a really great way um, moving forward. Cool. Also, I think, also, I think like no, you go. I think in some ways a, a fully hybrid meeting is harder than a, either a fully in-person meeting or a, or a fully virtual meeting. And I wonder, um, I mean, it, of course we wanna record all of, if, if we go back to a, an in-person meeting, we wanna record all the sessions, make them available ideally as openly available as possible um, to anyone who wants to um, kind of isn't able to make it or wants to go back and watch things afterwards. I wonder if the future, it's hard to give people who are attending something virtually that is happening in person for some other people, the, the kind of floor space and the ability to engage. And I wonder um, whether a kind of um, annual, biannual kind of switching between, you know, having it virtual one year to like get the most of making it accessible because it's, it's, it's beyond um, the cost and the uh, there's also it, it becomes much more accessible to people with childcare responsibilities and uh, and and people younger people people with tight schedules and so I wonder if a biannual kind of rhythm where we have it in person in one year and then of course we do we record it and we make it available afterwards but then also or even stream it potentially if we could um, but then having a, a, a keeping the virtual theme going because I think we we're learning how to do it really well and and and, and there's a lot of benefits from that also. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was basically what I wanted to say that. Um, we shouldn't drop the ball on the virtual meetings because they offer such a great um, platform for inclusivity. Like there's so many so many reasons why people can't travel. Like like Janine said, like having small kids or whatever tight schedule. So I think this is really important. Um, yeah. So so it, it actually I mean it, to me it also seems that uh, virtual meetings are sort of opening up how we think of meetings in some sense. So, I mean there's nothing to say that it has to be like at a certain time. I mean it seems that that you could almost imagine having a rolling, you know, OHBM uh, sort of series that just kind of goes throughout the year in some sense. I mean, you know, there were some interesting, you know, creative solutions of, uh, you know, there's uh, Twitter, uh, the OHBM X meeting with happened one day across the entire globe. But you could also imagine having, you know, just continuous, you know, updates on, on topics and talks that just kind of keep on going and then having the meeting as sort of like a, uh, uh, you know, a punctuation of, you know, okay, this is where we're all going to maybe chat about it and whatever. 
but but yeah, you, it, it opens up the the field of redefining what you think of meetings. I mean, of course, we have time zone issues, and uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be perfectly real time for everyone. You could have chat, you know, you could have ongoing discussions. You know, who knows? But anyway, it, it just opens up all kinds of uh, opportunities, I think, uh, and just sort of redefine what it means to, to have a meeting. Um, so. I totally I think, agree with that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. There's a lot I of think, opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think now that we're, now that, um, you know, we're able to meet in person with at least some people again, um, there's also like virtual doesn't necessarily mean sitting sadly by yourself at a computer and listening passively. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to, I'm planning a watch party for OHBM virtual this year with my lab. So I'm looking forward to actually watching some of the talks together and, and getting to have at least some of those discussions because I think that's actually where you learn the most or, or get the most ideas is when you discuss what you've just listened to with people around you. So I think maybe local watch parties or, um, and maybe that can grow into more of a, a you know, Midwest watch party or a, or a US watch party uh, and a Europe watch party or that sort of thing. Um, I'm excited about those ideas as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get all my information about the meetings basically on who I talk to. Sometimes I do my best to, to look at it, but then there's always somebody who says, oh, I saw this talk and I, I never would have looked at that. So it's the, really the, I mean, there's so much with human communication as far as that's concerned, that's so valuable, yeah. Um, One of the things that I can add that uh, the, in addition to local uh, watch parties, there would be some sort of extension of uh, local OHBM groups in their language so they can incorporate with the global. So it will be uh, easy to use the native language, then it, it can be uh, possible to virtually connect in English and then have some connection. So if, for the future, it might be another opportunity. That's a really interesting idea. Um, you know, having, you know, potentially with AI, you could have real-time translation or, or even, you know, person trans, you know, somebody who's, who's, uh, you know, to, to have that virtually, yeah. I like that idea. That's a, because that's language is the one of the barriers in geographically. Not everyone is quite fluent in English, but yes. they, they might be fluent in speaking or giving speech in certain topic, but not casual conversation. So it's a, always a barrier, it's a challenge. So. Providing tools to uh, overcome this could be useful. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I mean, it's it's sort of you know it's both fortunate but also unfortunate that that yeah English has been sort of like the the language and and uh, um, yeah I definitely feel it's holding in some sense it helps but in some sense it holds things back because there are so many so many uh, you know if you want to get outside the Western you know European you know whatever culture, you have to expect that uh, people do science and, and they, they don't necessarily learn English as well. So, and that's, that's so I, I totally agree with you. That's a great idea. I, I think that, uh, and how to actually do it though is, is another challenge, but, 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 but I like the idea also of, you know, uh, trying to find groups, like, you know, you can imagine, you can identify groups like in, in areas that are underrepresented. Um, and try to try to have a grassroots movement to identify people, and and sort of try to foster these local, maybe have a you know these tiny even local communities of OHBM uh, where where that where those sort of seeds are are planted in that regard. 
And I think that makes our meeting more sustainable on like multiple levels. Um, I'm just thinking about what Janine said about having kind of like a rhythm of virtual and hybrid and in-person meetings. And I think that it could be a really great opportunity to not only um, make our, our meetings more sustainable, because if many, many people aren't taking long flights to get to the meetings, that's just an inherent win for the environment, but sustainable in a, in a sociocultural way as well. Um, I think building grassroots movements that are talking about science in a way that is best for them um, helps sustain the community and uh, the discussions and kind of the movement of knowledge in like a very broad sense that I think is really valuable. Yeah. Yep. One thing that, one thing I just wanna also bring up though is the, just the danger of sometimes these diversity inclusivity efforts are focused on putting extra work and burden on the people themselves who we are trying to um, loop in, right? So it's like, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, the local, you know, the local communities should be organizing more to get to do, to, you know, to integrate more into OHBM. Um, but that, but that's kind of expecting more work on the people who we're actually just trying to loop into the conversation. Um, so in, we should, the conversation I think also should be considering how could we as sort of the, you know, more, uh, you know, Western European, uh, center of OHBM be doing a better job of reaching out and accessing these other groups. And I, and I, and as a, member of you know the open science sig one of the things that i've thought a lot is that geographical diversity geographical inclusivity is perhaps one of the biggest most difficult challenges um that we all face and that has a variety of different you know faces it looks like oh all of the people who are um practicing open science using python those are the ones who are like Northern European and are, you know, European and Western, et cetera. And then, you know, China, everybody uses MATLAB or something, for example, right? Um, so that that's an issue that the open science SIG, we're too focused on Python. We're too focused on open science software. We're not focused enough on inclusivity of people who are using different software packages, but also like the programming, the OHBM programming, it's all in English um, yeah. and it's not translated. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the subtitles, there's there's no like Japanese subtitles or Chinese subtitles or whatever, but it would be really, you know, helpful. We could, we could, I'm sure that based on our understanding of how the community, how, how many members are in each community, we can identify which are the, like the five languages that we should be translating all of the talks into through some kind of paid service. I, I would get, you know, that it's, a, I'm brainstorming, but these are the kinds of questions I think we should be thinking about when talking about geographical inclusivity and diversity is like, what are the, the roadblocks that we ourselves are putting up that are preventing it rather than like, you know, what additional work can we expect from other people to yeah. get more integrated? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, I totally agree. Uh, it seems like a low hanging fruit too and relatively cheap to find, you know, people to translate, uh, you know, uh, you know, five different languages, like you said. And I think we're in maybe the best place to do that that we've ever been as a society, like with, um, like improving uh, automatic captioning services um, and improving um, like awareness of of like how best to make things accessible. I think that now is as good a time as any, right? Um, to kind of take this take this issue by the horns and um, and really, I don't I don't know that I don't mean to say solve it, but like improve on um, 
improve on our offerings in this way. I think it's a really neat opportunity that we should really take advantage of. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I totally, I, yeah, I totally agree. And, and I keep on thinking back that, you know, science is this sort of glue uh, that, that connects cultures. I mean, we have a common, common interest and it's very universal. And yeah, and it really, I think, is a good influence for a lot of other things in the world too, but as far as that's concerned. So yeah, having ways of, and in this, the short run gain, uh, it, it may not be immediate. It might not be an immediate sort of a benefit, but, but it will, it will, it seems like, like any good thing it will, it will build. Um, and it's hard to know exactly how it will build. But yeah. That's yeah. That's a, That's exciting as far as that's concerned. So did you, um, so you wrote a paper, you, you, you mentioned that uh, on, uh, you wrote a manuscript. I guess you, we, we covered a lot of uh, on, on inclusive virtual conferences. Uh, did you want to mention, uh, talk about that a, a little bit to the extent that, you know, obviously maybe we talked about most of that, but uh, um, I don't know if there's anything, any points you brought up in your manuscript that, that are worth discussing further. Uh, and so when did you write that manuscript? Was it, uh, was it recently? I, I... Yeah, it was, it was basically just now. Um, okay. And one of our, like Remy, he got invited um, by um, Neuron. And then he basically made it an open science project, which was really great. Like we have now, I think over 170 authors and like the last author is the community, which is the Brenner community, which is really great. And um, also like, yeah, the manuscript basically or the paper has now been published and it, it touches on all the things that we've already discussed, but it also comes with an extension, um, uh, which, uh, online extension of our um, Jupyter book that is still maintained um, and we add on content there. It's also like the Jupyter book has glossaries in different languages. So we try like this language thing, like translating stuff, like, make this happen. And um, yeah, so that's, it's definitely worth checking out and like also, um, yeah, checking every once in a while because it's, it's updated and maintained. Okay, so oh. is there like a website associated? I mean, is there a link or, or maybe I could try to put that in? Um, there is the link to the Jupyter book is in the manuscript and the manuscript is called Brainhack Developing a Culture of Open Inclusive Community Driven Neuroscience. Okay. I don't have the link right here, but then. Um, where is that published in? Um, in um, Neuron. In Neuron, okay, that's what's mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, great, all right. And to make matters even better, there is an additional manuscript published by, or in currently in press, um, I think it's under review, uh, public, or written by a lot of the members of the Open Science SIG from last year um, that build specifically on this issue of the, uh, the virtual spaces. And I, I think we've touched on a lot of the points that are made in the manuscript, but I think those two pieces kind of go hand in hand in um, not only like reintroducing in some ways what it is that we're doing to the world, but also like trying to help people build on the lessons that we've learned in the past year and change. Okay. Okay. Great. I'll, I'll make sure I mention that uh, and, and advertise that as well. So, um, so, so just to maybe shift gears slightly. Uh, so, um, so I noticed that uh, you had a new role of a inclusivity officer this year. Uh, and that and that would be Melvin. So um, so how how has this allowed you to better uh, you know consider in inclusivity as part of uh, the events associated with with the meeting and and with what you do? So so what what is that role and 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 what do you envision it? Yeah. Uh, my understanding from this role is to be the link between diverse audience and the organizers of the event. We have our open science room 
and brain hack. So uh, those events are uh, being organized according to the needs of several diverse groups. Uh, so I, I was the link between them. I was listening and uh, being the connection between these groups. There are several groups that uh, we're, we've been in touch, such black and neuro disabled in STEM and several other uh, queer organizations. So we want to uh, enhance their representation and enhance their voices during our events. And uh, we care about accessibility a lot. So we want to make sure that we are using, having closed captioning on all the video materials or, or virtual live interactions. So, uh, we want to make these events as reachable, as understandable as possible. And I'm the link between the several groups. All right. Well, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because it's, it seems like for years, it's sort of a blind spot, I think, in the community. And, you know, we're all like just thinking about our, our research and then we think about you know, our university's research and just the field. But we don't we don't think about you know most people don't naturally just think about oh how you know how can I engage uh, uh, diverse groups to everyone's benefit yeah. and, and 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 the logistics of that yeah that's so important and I think and, once you realize it yeah it's like wow this is a huge problem and it's a huge challenge it's worth doing and also it's difficult for underrepresented groups to speak up and find a place to. Uh, express themselves. So uh, providing that space and, and, and mentioning that it's a safe space for you to be yourself and do your science and uh, use your words however, however you like. So mentioning that is like first step of uh, with just inviting them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's good to know. That's good to know that that you know one would hope that that the whole meeting is sort of a safe space. But at least having this as a, as a start to sort of be, you know, to foster this sort of uh, sense that you can really sort of you know uh, express and share uh, our experiences that that sometimes we're we're not as comfortable sharing, you know, in the context yeah. of the meeting. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. We're also brainstorming with several people from BrainHack and they have experience on organizing uh, several local events and uh, using that envision, we are uh, trying to reach out geographically. Uh, so far, we, we've reached out some people from Brazil and uh, some representation from Africa. They're joining us this year, uh, but there will be also much more representation we're hoping to get. That is great. Uh, so that's with the BrainHack, really. So they're they're reaching out... How, how are for they the, for the OHBM brain at the upcoming? Yeah, yeah. So how how are they? Just out of curiosity, I mean, I think that uh, you know, just thinking of the logistics of that. I mean, how are they? How how are they doing that? Like, um, are they just simply contacting them and saying, "Hey, log in and 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 let's just you know um, find a you know common thing to work on." I mean, is it just simply including people and fostering this discussion, or is there anything further? Um, uh, that they're doing to help accommodate uh, the other groups. Like, like I can imagine, like if I'm trying to reach out, you know, I, I wouldn't even know. Like for instance, if I were in BrainHack and I'm like, okay, how do I reach out to a group in Africa? Um, I, don't, I don't know who I'd contact or... <laughs> There's several organizations listed. So we're trying to reach them. There's several groups that, that are actively 
on the internet, their Twitters or several social media, so to connect. So what we are trying to do to reach them and spread the word. That's that's really that's great. That's great. Um, we've 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 done some work in trying to make it that brain hack is not something that's just for people who've been to brain hack before. Um, that this is a difference between how brain hack is in person versus how brain hack is virtually. It, you can have as many people as you want virtually, but it's really a space limited event when it's in person. So that so the move to digital is really has been a nice boom for the inclusivity element of, of our work in that in that regard and letting people know you don't have to be a pro hacker you don't have to even know really know how to code um, to come to a brain hack and to do really you know to make a valuable contribution and if you come from a low-income country or a middle-income country or you just find yourself that you are not going to be able to pay we we're trying to make it very clear like there's not going to be any barrier you just contact us we'll waive the fee and and you can feel free to join. There's no cost to you to get access to this um, community. That's great, that's great. Yeah, I've always loved Brain High. I mean, initially I think a lot of people are like, oh, what's this, you know? And the idea that there's no set projects and there's no real goals, but you sort of bring people together and they come up with ideas. And it, I, I think it's, it's getting better and better every year. Um, and like you said, having this virtual presence. And it, once again, at Brain Hack could be something that isn't limited to a certain time uh, it could just be con somewhat continuous potentially. I mean, I know that there's there's been brain hack groups around the around the world and meetings, but but even having a continuous forum for for just at this low level of sort of like you know you're trying to both find interesting problems and find solutions at the same time uh, is is really powerful and and also helps include people on the whole process and, and identifies things that we might be missing. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the news, oh, sorry, really quick. Uh, good news that space exists. Um, some of the people who organized the brain hack in Rome, um, both for the OHBM meeting a few years ago, have made a persistent virtual space for like ongoing brain hacks. So, um, it's the, the brainchild pun ever so intended of um, Katja Hoyer and Roberto Toro. And I don't have the link on the top of my head, but I will make sure that I send it to you so that it can be included because I think that that's a really neat, um, a really neat boon of the virtual spaces. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll try to include all, you know, all that information if the best I can in, in how this is written up in, in that regard as well. Um, so, so, I mean, are there any, uh, so as far as the, the and uh, well, just what, before I go on um, a little bit more of the hackathon, it, it sort of also occurred to me that uh, just general outreach, um, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast in general. I mean, you know, the whole public gets this, uh, but it, it seems that there could also be a lot more uh, work towards just outreach, engaging, engaging the public uh, with, you know, letting people know what OHBM does. I don't know if, if that is in the domain of, of this group or not, but um, uh, you know, giving public lectures like OHBM used to have, you know, once or twice, I think they did it, just a public lecture. Um, uh, uh, you know, just because who knows, you know, that could inspire someone in high school or whatever. Um, yeah, so we have um, actually an outreach channel. So we, we um, kind of connect on Mattermost. I think that's uh, the open science um, space. But then we have an outreach channel that was actually made to um, 
kind of promote the paper, but it has like developed into outreach in general. And like one thing that we just did is make a video where we had like five um, questions and everybody who joined um, recorded themselves answering them in their language. And then we had subtitles um, so that also people who do not speak German or French can actually like in, so English subtitles. Um, and we are going to probably I think it's already on YouTube, like just um, showcasing what we what Brainhack is, what we do, um, and a little bit about the community. Um, yeah, these are just. It's also like I think a lot of people are really interested in. It's it's a fun activity doing these things, so that's why we're also doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even even at the once we do have real meetings in the future, uh, you know, just trying to do something at the city you're at, you know, is kind of fun in, in that regard too. But um, yeah. Well, great. This is this is great. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. It's wonderful. I really think uh, that hopefully everyone listening to this will be completely convinced that uh, that that what you're doing is is a long time coming and actually really important. So let's just um, uh, I mean, on so many levels, not only for the quality of science, but the engagement of everyone and helping the world in general. <laughs> um, but let's let's go back to the like the hackathon um, just really quickly. So. Uh, are there any particular projects that you're that you've done in the past or that that sort of came out of of this that aside from engaging people, which is an end in itself, um, uh, are there any things that have been useful? Uh, not I wouldn't say even useful because there's different definitions of that word, but you know just that people have used or things that have that are particularly unique uh, as far as that's concerned. Yeah, so I think like um, just saying like the typical brain hack project does not exist. Like it's so diverse, and I think that's the great thing about brain hack. But like a couple of projects that I think are worth mentioning is so one is um, Brainer, which is I think one of my favorite that came out of a brain hack, and it's basically Tinder for neuroscience. So if you go to the website, you swipe left or right to indicate whether a neuro image is clean or corrupted. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yes, it's very fun, and it's like um, basically harnessing the communities kind of the, yeah, the people in the community to um, clear large um, new imaging data sets and it, it's really fun and there's also a little um, competition because you get scores and then you can compete against people that also join um, and then another project that I think is worth mentioning is that or like projects that I was mentioning are those that do not include coding because um, we also have those actually so there was this one project called um, open brain consent which was about um, and developing a concept form te template for the collection and sharing of human neuroimaging data. And um, I think this is worth mentioning because we, we want to encourage people who are maybe new to coding or not so familiar with coding to also join. Like we also have those projects and we need these people and we really want them to be included. Um, yeah, and um, but the project that we were going to do like this year, I guess that depends a bit on the community because they are all community driven, right? Like it's the idea is that people join and submit projects. So this is a call out to the listeners. If you have any cool idea, just register and join. Um, and yeah, what I also wanted, I think that's important to say, like if you submit a project, don't think that you have to ha need, need to have the answers for everything. Like the project lead is basically just providing the idea and then people join and you work together. So just, yeah, to make this clear because it, it might be like, a, like impeding people because they think, oh no, I don't know. Like I have an idea, but I don't know, you know, I have no idea how to solve this. You don't, you don't have to know how to solve it. Like that's the idea, you solve it together. Yeah, that is, that is great. And it seems like there's so many, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, it seems like there's so many ideas that could be related to, like, I love the Brainder 
uh, concept. Uh, you know, that whole concept of even trying to use that to curate the, the abstracts or the, to sort of, you know, like what's, to get a sense even of like, you know, uh, the judgment of, you know, what abstract is good or whatever, or even, you know, whatever, um, or even like, I, I like to get a sense, like for instance, when you're at a real meeting, uh, you see a whole bunch of people standing around an abstract, you're like, oh, I'll, I'll check that out um, for better or for worse. But I mean, having that information, like, you know, or the more popular abstracts and how is this changing in real time or whatever, that's could be kind of cool too, or even curation of other ways too. That, um, so good news on that front, um, Brainder kind of um, gave rise to a whole platform called Swipes for Science, which is, it provides like a boilerplate for exactly that is like using the sort of the Brainder idea, however you want to use it. Um, I know somebody was using it for diffusion weighted um, imaging quality control recently. And um, if you, if you QC this many images, you get to be an author on the paper, which I think is a really cool way to, um, I guess, in like, on the one hand, it gets people to like help you do quality control, which I don't think is anybody's favorite thing to do. Um, but on the other hand, it kind of does help democratize science. Um, and I love it. But if you want that platform for another thing, good news, it's available and it's a uh, pretty user friendly to set up. So that is great. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, I don't know if you had any other 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 project, but that's that's awesome. I mean, just in, in itself. I mean, it's so that could be so much fun, and you know, further engaging people and, and actually helping people, as far as that's concerned. Um, yeah, there's there's a a lot of pro, there's a lot of projects that currently exist, and you kind of look at them, and you're like, wow, that's a really amazing polished thing. Um, uh, you know. That have been contributed to through multiple brain hacks over time. Um, so it's like there's a history. So for example, like NyPipe, Nylearn, um, you know, there they people are people are making pull requests to these like over time repeatedly, or you know, porting something from one language into another, etc. So it's like there there's also a lot of the. Uh, the, a lot of the tools that everybody's that everyone's used to using, or a lot of people are used to using, that are that the brain hack is is helping uh, develop in in many different ways, documentation wise or additional functionality. Et that was that's how I got into this whole thing um, is by like doing the like little babyest of pull requests on NiPipe to try to like make some of the AFNI tools more accessible to people who who just use NiPipe. So. Um, I think that that's a really great point that Aki brought up is like there's the the polished things that like um, just keep just keep churning on and on at brain hacks and then there are the silly things I have a personal love for the silly things um, we spent a hackathon making little emojis uh, with people's faces on them one time and like is that advancing science maybe in a like weird indirect sociocultural sort of way um, is it fun absolutely did I learn how to make gifs also yes so there's a there's like no end to the the beauty of the brain hack. Yeah, there's a lot of creative people, and and sort of fostering that is is, is only a good thing. And letting it and having outlets for it is awesome. So that's perfect. I I like that. I'm gonna be paying more attention to that. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so just to you know we're we're yeah might as well we're getting a little bit little bit short on time so we're just wrapping up a little bit but um how do you think uh so obviously we've gone over a lot of these points but um so what do you think uh how can you picture science in general or open science uh in how 
ideally it should evolve like in the next 10 years or longer. I mean, how do you envision, you know, what's, what's, what's your goal that you're shooting for in the concept of open science? Um, it's sort of, I, it's, yeah. That's a big question, <laughs> but, but I'll give you, I'll give you some thoughts. I mean, um, I, I would personally in, in science as a whole, I would personally like to see more agreement and more team science. I think, you know, I think our field is mature enough that we can start to um, come to a consensus on some things that there's certainly, you know, I think part of the challenge with re replicability crisis and, and things like that is that there's so many permutations of, of what is essentially a very similar processing pipelines, but there's just like so many little decisions and little permutations within that. And I think as a community, we're, we're far enough and we understand things well enough to at least start thinking about a consensus or, or setting some standards. And that doesn't mean that there can't be any new methods or that, they, that we all have to agree on one specific pipeline, but like reducing the complexity from, you know, hundreds or, or even thousands of different permutations to maybe like three pipelines or five pipelines that, that, that we can pick from, I think, I think that would be amazing. Um, and, and, and to me, you know, the, the era of the 40 patients, 40 controls comparison study with just like one modality is probably behind us. And I, I think we're, you know, data sets and studies are gonna be bigger. Um, they're gonna involve different modalities or, or maybe even uh, looking at the brain at different scales. And so that, that, for that, we can only achieve that by doing, having bigger teams and bringing in more different people with different expertises and, and, and more diverse kind of ideas and backgrounds. And so I'm, I'm really excited to go into that direction in science as a whole. And I think open science is hopefully creating that community and that platform uh, for, for us to get there. Yeah. Um, it does seem like what, what you mentioned, there's this tension between having everyone do their own thing, uh, you know, different, very different, but versus a consensus. You certainly don't want to, you know, have a consensus that's premature or not flexible. Uh, you want to have a dynamic, but you also, you, you, it does help to have some sort of a, to make things easier for everyone uh, to have a common platform. I mean, that's why, you know, SPM was made and, and other platforms, uh, and that's just one example, but uh, there's always this balance. I mean, there's something that could come out of nowhere and say, this is, might be better. And, and like having a mechanism for finding a consensus uh, and being flexible at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a consensus, a consensus can evolve. A, a consensus isn't fixed. But I think if we can all, I would like to see is more putting more effort into like trying to have, like trying to agree rather than disagree, like finding, having those discussions and finding those, those points where we can, we can move forward from. And, and that doesn't mean not challenging things, but, but asking good questions and, 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 um, relating relating more of the science that we do to other papers and other parts of science i think uh is is to me something that's really exciting yeah i kind of want to just build on basically everything that janine said so thanks for that um i think that we're in a really great spot um with kind of the beginning of the shift towards that sort of science um, we have, like we mentioned earlier, several papers that are kind of like science of science papers that are showing us some of the, the blind spots and how we've been doing science and kind of point towards like um, 
how we need to improve in really concrete ways. I'm thinking specifically of like looking at effect sizes and sample sizes and like how many people do we actually need to, to answer the question we're trying to answer. And in that way, I'm really encouraged by projects like the ABCD project, which I think one of the early um, early findings was effect sizes are extremely small. Um, and like that is a finding in and of itself because that can only help us move forward. Um, but also to like harken back to something that each um, Aki and Melvin had said earlier is that if we're gonna take one step forward and fewer steps back, we really need just like a, just bigger groups and bigger groups of people working together. And I think that um, we're in a great place to do that. And it's really exciting to me. Um, my personal like favorite thing right now is um, just how much the brain changes in general, just like as you exist as a person. Um, and we would have like no way of, uh, of studying that if we didn't know things about effect sizes, if we didn't, like if we hadn't like identified a reproducibility crisis and if we hadn't been working in like in big teams of science. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by, by the direction that we're going right now. Yeah, and I, I hope I just hope that um, at some point when we say science, we will mean open science, so that this will become the standard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lucky. Um, yeah, I, I am, I'm, I'm hopeful that in the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, there, it's kind of more common knowledge. Some of the issues about the replication crisis uh, just kind of become everybody kind of understands it. Um, and, and uh, you know, so say, for example, like one would be that the correlation between two things is limited by the reliability of those two things, right? So like you can't have a correlation of 0.9 between A and B if A and B themselves are less reliable than 0.9, just, just to like throw that out there, right? Like if A doesn't predict A above a certain amount, you can't have anything else predict it with that amount. I would, I would love if like, common knowledge about like as a field we all had common knowledge on what what bias is what variance is what the trade-off between the two is what overfitting means how high dimensional statistics places particular challenges on the questions we're trying to answer um what regularization is and how it like so there's all this like statistical knowledge that i would love to see disseminated and sort of perspective on how we are creating data and how we're answering questions about um, our data um, but maybe, maybe more importantly, since that's more of an education problem, um, it would be, I would love to see something kind of like ABCD, but instead of collecting a massive data set, um, it's deeply phenotyping people um, with multiple samplings over time um, <laughs> to get a better estimate of the reliability of each of our different neuroimaging measurement types are phenotypic measurements. Um, a lot of the things that we, me and my colleagues talk about is that everyone focuses a lot on the reliability of neuroimaging. So we are pushing the reliability of neuroimaging up and up and up, right? But the reliability of phenotypic measurements are really problematic. And if you want to discover biomarkers, so or, say for mental illness, or if you want to discover some kind of biomarker for how cognition is actually performed by the brain, you need to be maximizing the joint reliability of the two things that you're measuring. So how to both, so, you know, like how to both maximize phenotypic reliability and uh, neuroimaging reliability and which, which um, tasks to be choosing to measure cognitive performance, et cetera. Um, I would love to see some kind of data set with, you know, say 
10, 10 multiple acquisitions for many subjects um, of fMRI, structural MRI, phenotypic measurements, um, and understanding not only the reliability of each of those measurements, but also the variance and the observed correlations that are seen uh, between the different modalities. So we understand a little bit more of like, okay, is this finding that we're seeing, is this above what we might be expecting just due to random chance? One of the things that like um, is important to understand is that as your reliability goes down, there's a thing called attenuation that happens. So like your, your effect sizes actually get smaller and smaller. So, you know, there's, uh, there's some benefit to like actually trying to maximize reliability in our, in our, in the data that we're acquiring. And I think having like, um, there's a, there's a great data set in, in China where they have basically 30 people who've been scanned 10 times over the course of a month. It's one of my favorite data sets. I would love to see something like that, um, exist in many modalities and with phenotype, phenotyping included so that we can get a little bit, um, maybe with even more people. You know, I think I think creating those kinds of data sets that are a baseline that they will allow for new work into reliability and reproducibility of science of our of neuroscience to happen that we currently actually can't do. We can't conduct it because we don't have that data yet. Yeah, I, I like your idea of of having the open science thing sort of you know have these you know sort of foster these meta principles of like you know um, you know the idea that of doing deep imaging of individual subjects to characterize them deeply with their phenotype and, uh, and genotype and also their variability uh, and have people understand, yeah, um, principles of, of good processing. Most people just approach it in a very, you know, they start collecting data and they sort of figure out on the fly and they, they triangulate between their group. Having, having sort of this top-down sort of you know, I can imagine writing, you know, having you, your group sort of writing a, a position. I mean, there's certainly there's a standards committee um, uh, with OHBM, but that only goes so far. But having having sort of a consensus on principles or meta principles of how to do, what were the gaps, how to do the best research. Uh, once again, it's sort of a matter of curating the ideas uh, to help push the field. Uh, I, I like I like that. I think. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the high dimensional uh, statistical world that we live in is very different than the psychology of yesterday, right? Like that, and, and it's not just different from the perspective of, oh, now we need to be really pro coders that, you know, can schedule jobs on a cluster and yada, yada, yada. It's not that. It's from the statistical perspective that does like the curse of dimensionality. It means that in higher dimensional spaces, things are just harder to discern, right? Yes. That's just like a fundamental element of the of how we're addressing these, um, how, like what we're trying to tackle here. So like, yeah, we thinking thinking from that perspective, thinking of the perspective of the, hum, the humbled perspective of the challenge of making discernment in high dimensional space is one that is not solved and is very difficult and like what are the things that we need to do in order to have a decent shot at being able to do that? Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, and I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a group that can make, can sort of bring people together on that, on that question. Um, uh, there's other groups too, and, and there's certainly, and like you said, there's lots of discussion about it, but it's not ever, you know, a, a sense that, that it's sort of, 
this consensus has reached slowly and, and the information is disseminated in, incompletely. Um, uh, you know, things that are obvious that, that people should just know, um, that is, that's evolving and sort of being, yeah, I mean, having this group as a potential mechanism for, uh, you know, complementing the, the, you know, the, the OHPM standards group or whatever, that's, that's a little bit behind in some sense. This is sort of like information, best practices, information or advice or principles. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's a lot of work to, to, I mean, it's constantly a living, it would be a living document, but I think that would be cool to keep that uh, perspective and, and sort of, that would certainly be a service to the field uh, as yeah. well. I, I mean, I mean, it's important to, to note also, it's not like these are solved outside, these questions are solved outside of neuroimaging. These right. are, these, these questions of how do we make discernment in high dimensional space is kind of the question of our era. <laughs> from a scientific perspective, like everyone is, everyone is struggling with the high, high dimensional, um, the dimensionality of our data, and it's not, it's not, it's not us alone. Um, so you know, we might have best practices, we might sort of coalesce, but for a large part, we're going to be getting some kind of trickle down information from the people in statistics departments and machine learning departments who are really on the cutting edge of understanding how to how to do this in a, in a way. But the thing that we bring, I think, to the table that's different is that unlike like this stats departments and the um, machine learning, you know, folks, we're thinking about like, well, how does the rubber meet the road actually? Like when you want to actually take a clinician, make a diagnosis, and then associate that with the neuroimaging measurement, like the sort of looking, looking from the perspective of the, um, like the people who do the, the standards and measurement, the international standards and measurement like community, like there's specific thing, they mean very specific things with reliability and reproducibility. And, yes. you know, like that, that we are also trying to like understand because we eventually ourselves want to be able to make statements like, um, you know, prognosticate some kind of thing based on some neuro, neuroimaging measurement or some cluster of neuroimaging and other data forms or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an evolving conversation. I think that hopefully we all, we all continue to have, but I think putting that conversation in primacy in the, in the, in the, putting it on the pedestal that it deserves, I think is going to, is really important in order for us as a community to be maximizing our scientific impact over the long term. Yeah, I, I agree, and we haven't even mentioned right that, like you you suggested, right? Clint, I mean, real clinical impact of neuroimaging biomarkers. I mean, that doesn't exist yet, and you know, people don't be, have a good intuition why exactly. Uh, there's reasons why, and and you you hint you you suggest them, and I think it's worth. Yeah, the the, the more we're on board about you know what what the issues are, the the faster we'll find solutions. Uh, in this regard, but um, uh, yeah, I yeah I, I I can't and like I said, there's 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 a lot of discussion, but uh, I actually I I agree with you. I think that there's enough coalescence of you know sizing up the problem, like you said, the the, the curse of multidimensionality. Most people wouldn't really think of that off the top of their head as the as the big problem. They'd be like, oh, that's kind of you know stuff. We have to do. I not think. an interesting academic sidebar, you know. That's not right. not that. It's like a fundamental issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think having that point, uh, having more people 
aware of that. I mean, this is sort of like a this group or in general, it would be interesting to think about how to make to raise that issue such that it is on top of people's heads and, and how they how they solve that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we're actually talking about this year is not technical issues. So, you know, I'm spouting on on and ranting about these technical elements, but I think really we're in a moment right now in history where the social cultural roadblocks of open science are more important because these technical things, they're not there. Everybody needs to address them and they'll get addressed over time when really smart people work on them. But there's social cultural issues of, you know, lack of diversity, inclusivity, um, lack of incent, op, like appropriate incentive structure, all of these kinds of things that like the faster, we need to address these things really, really like as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and oh, just, oh, go on, Melvin. Yes, yeah, yeah, I also agree that for the better technical solutions, we need people. And we need a non-traditional definition of scientists. So. With that brainstorming, we, we will be able to tackle that hard questions. That's my note. Yeah, yeah good point. Yeah, and I, 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 I do think, you know, it's interesting. It, you, you, you sort of emphasize the importance of the social problems. And, and I, I kind of a, agree. I mean, the whole social landscape of the world is, is, is not just something that necessarily just kind of progresses. It's like people suggest that we're in a state where it's extremely volatile and the more we can sort of reach out and sort of spread a net of like, okay, let's, let's, we're all sort of on the same game, at least in the context of science or brain science, that might help, um, you know, it might help the big picture in terms of, you know, people worry about having a total split of like, you know, Western culture versus whatever. Um, and and it, it doesn't have to be that way. And it, you're right, there might be a, important time periods now uh, to do something, uh, be much more proactive uh, about this sort of thing. So, absolutely. And I think we have the best shot of solving some of these like hard problems by just getting more people working on them, right? Uh, many what may, many hands make light work. Many brains, hopefully, minds too. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Yeah. I, on that, on that note, um, <laughs> uh, this has been a great discussion. I don't know if anyone else, anyone else wants to say anything else about uh, at least what they're doing or what, you know, any sort of hopeful thoughts, but I think that this overall, this has been uh, 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 a great discussion, not only about what Open Science Special Interest Group does, but you know, about what you have been doing, about the big problems and the big challenges uh, of today. So definitely look forward to the meeting and seeing and seeing how you are manifest with that and look forward to future meetings to see how things work. So, all right. Thank you very much for, for joining me. It's, thank you. All right. Thank you for having thank us. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.